0: Grand Touring Motorsports started as a social group of car enthusiasts, but we've expanded into all sorts of motorsports disciplines, and we want to share our stories with you. Years of racing, wrenching, and motorsports experience brings together a top-notch collection of knowledge and information through our podcast, Break Fix. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to another installment of Break Fix. I'm your host, Brad, aka The Triple Six. With me, as always, is our co-host, Eric. On
1: today's episode, we're gonna do a movie mixed bag, a review of four different car adjacent movies, Born Racer, the biopic about IndyCar legend Scott Dixon, the original cult classic Gone in 60 Seconds from 1974, No Man's Land starring Charlie Sheen and D.B. Sweeney from 1987, and finally Lost Bullet, a French film that debuted during the pandemic on Netflix in 2020. With us tonight is a panel of GTM members, Crutch, Chrissy, Mountain Man, Dan, Tanya, and the First Lady of GTM, Jessica, to join us tonight to discuss all these different films. And with that, let's get into it. So first up, we have Born Racer.
2: Well, one, it was a fitting timing to watch that since Scott Dixon has actually won the first three races this season for the uh, the pandemic season. But I think it actually did a really good job of balancing the the commitment that's involved in being a professional race car driver and the risks that are involved and how their family deals with those risks because they touched on some of the tragic incidents that have happened in the past and scott dixon's horrible crash in the 2017 indy 500 just the initial a visceral response that his wife had when that accident happened and, and how everything came together after the fact so it was it was a nice behind the scenes look from that point of view in my opinion and I don't know about
1: you guys, but I picked up on a couple of hidden messages there, like Tony Kanaan at the end, you know, he kind of wrapped up some thoughts and, and he mentioned something about like, you know, people just have to adapt to the racer's lifestyle. And if you don't like it, tough. I mean, that was really the gist. There
3: was something else that Emma had said, you know, Scott's not happy unless he's winning. I thought it was more than stating the fact that he's not happy unless he's going fast, unless I pick up in a different spot. Cause they did hit on that a couple of times. Like her speaking about that competition, as well, just like the, th- the thrill type aspect, I guess, is what they were trying to point out about what a lot of race car drivers do. I've mentioned before, especially with the motocross type stuff, I relate to that because that's more thrill-seeking than you know, some other aspects of motorsports. sure going 230 mile an hour in an open cockpit car is rather uh, intense. I've never experienced it, but who knows? Maybe I will one day.
1: And they did focus a lot on his wife. And I agree with Mike that you saw the more personal side of it with his daughters and all that. But there were certain scenes that I didn't feel like they were a value add. They, they followed her running for a while. And I'm like, okay, yeah, she was an Olympic runner. I get it. But I mean, do I need to see her putting on her shoes and getting ready to go for a jog? I mean, it, it just didn't provide anything. and It, it felt like filler. To add
3: on that, Mike, I also liked how I gave the background of when he was a youth and was out karting and stuff like that and how he got into cars and racing in general and how even, I like how they even had members of his pit crew that used to do karting and stuff as they were growing up, grew up and became pit members. And it shows how he was one of the fortunate ones that started out and actually made it to a professional driving position. But there are so many of us that never make to that professional spot. There's that ability we can get onto a crew for a professional spot, which it would say there are guys that you know aspire to do that that never make it behind the wheel. But even just being part of a big team like that, that makes it on a professional level be an amazing thing. So, Mike, are there posters of Scott Dixon all over New Zealand since he spent some time here?
2: <laughs> no, I did not see it. But he is, he is mentioned when you're watching Australian Supercars. Because they talk about the New Zealand and Australian drivers that have made it big in, in other international series. But yeah, it was, it was interesting seeing his time back in back in Auckland and, and hearing his family talk about the sacrifices that they made for, for him to be able to proceed with his career as he, as he was growing up. It was also kind of interesting when they started do, doing the training regimen stuff. And when he was sitting in the sim. And the other guy was sitting there with with the device attached to his head to simulate G-forces while he's in the sim on his neck to stress his neck muscles in preparation for being in the car. So so some of those just short little snippets were actually just kind of an interesting behind the scenes look to things that you don't think about.
3: To touch on another thing that Mike was saying is like with the training with the guy thinking on his head and stuff for G-forces in his neck. I remember growing up and seeing like NASCAR guys, they would be sitting in a chair. And it would be a steering wheel, hope to basically a shock where they would be turning it. And that would be the force that they'd be working their arms to try to build up their muscle strength in their arms. for constantly doing the left turns. So seeing the fact how they were using all the concepts like, you know, touching the different things on the screen to get his neurological speed and uh, responses, uh, I thought was very interesting in that aspect of the training stuff they do. I get that on Forza. What are you talking about? <laughs>
2: The other interesting, weird little thing that was touched on was when they're talking to his tire engineer, and his tire engineer is talking about having worked for Mario Andretti and, and Senna and and saying, you know, I see in Scott Dixon the same type of drive that I saw in these other drivers, and it makes you want to give even more than 100 percent of yourself when you're trying to support him as a, as a team member.
1: So I think you you got a great segue for me and Tanya on that one because. I wanted to rename it Board Racer because I mean I struggled to get through this film and it's not very long it's what 88 minutes
0: did you say born racer or board racer oh i said board racer earlier
1: <laughs> <laughs> i don't know it was a chore there wasn't a lot of dialogue i did feel like i was watching another film from the 70s you guys are
4: not selling me i'm going to go watch it now just
1: i don't know that tire guy was more interesting than Scott Dixon was. I want to know about that dude. I want to know about his history. I mean, he worked with Senna. He worked with Andretti. I mean, wow, right? I mean, it was just more interesting than what I saw in the film.
5: Yeah, I mean, I I was captivated for the ten seconds of the tire guy, but it wasn't uh, a biopic about Senna or Mario Andretti or the tire guy. So I understand why he didn't go into his into his background. But
3: so to add one. I took his speaking in a different route because I was watching the different th- things he was doing, prepping tires and stuff like that. How uh, like in one one of the scenes, he's actually measuring the diameters of the tire afterwards, and the scientific curiosity in me is like, okay, what's he doing that for? How often does he do it? You know, I, I'd be interested in like the scientific mathematical aspect of that sort of stuff as well, just for that side of me that's always intrigued by that sort of stuff.
1: Again, that tire guy needs an entire movie to himself. He is super interesting, like what he does. Actually, if they had done a whole aspect of the Ganassi team, that would have been an interesting take on the whole situation because I think focusing an hour and a half on Scott, it just left you kind of like, meh. Is it just me or did the quote-unquote associate engineer, Kate Gundlach, did that make any sense to anybody why we were focusing so much attention on her when we weren't talking about Scott. Like, I don't understand what she did for the team other than obviously she was a part of the team, but why were the documentary makers so fixated on bringing her in every time they couldn't fill the scene with something with respect to Scott?
3: I don't know why they turned to her for that stuff, but as I mentioned earlier, uh, she was the one that brought out the fact of like she carded and everything when she was younger, never made to being in the seat of a professional card, but she was part of that team because everybody aspires to be the person driving the car, but there are plenty of positions other than that, Growing up through the motorsports world that you can fill. I think it may have been a way to pull people into, you know, all those important roles to help out the actual driver. I mean, I'm jealous. I'd love to work on a race team. So, I mean,
1: I, I aspire to be her or that, uh, the tire guy, right. That we've talked about. I just, I don't know. It just felt like, it was overplayed in a way. It's just like we kept going back to her. It's like, let's talk to somebody else on the race team. There's other people here. and it, it, I don't know. It's just odd.
2: I mean, she was the assistant engineer. She is the person sitting next to the crew chief on the pit box during the race. So it's not like she was just an inconsequential random team member. The The footage they had of her at the track was her sitting on the pit box next to whoever the crew chief was, monitoring telemetry and, and doing that kind of stuff. So she she has a more critical role than random crew member a who works air gun that keeps jamming on every pit stop
5: <laughs>
1: What well, what's that guy's name they kept saying focus on whatever his name was yeah. i was like oh my god <laughs> uh, so that's something we got to bring up talking about born racer dude scott dixon has the worst pit crew in the world i mean I-, I don't know what to say like the longest pit stops the most calamities i'm surprised a wheel didn't fall off
5: we didn't see a lot of his awesome driving maneuvers passing people on track. but We saw a lot of messed up pit stops, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I didn't know if they yeah. were trying to pass the buck or place the blame, but it was like, oh, that pit stop was 28 seconds. I'm like, yeah, well, half half the motor fell off, of course. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what we were looking at sometimes. I'm like, why is this relevant, right? So I don't know.
3: They could have done better. For the long pit stops, I'm thinking maybe they focused a little on that to put more focus on how good a driver he is for the fact even with these slow pit stops he is great on track where it's making up for that time that they're
2: losing in the pits despite being kneecapped at every turn he almost won
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that, that that theme gets old too after a while
5: i mean in general the movie the way they or the documentary the way they shot it was very slow which maybe speaks to scott himself since I, uh, I think several people mentioned how he doesn't talk a lot and he's a pretty quiet guy. And if they were trying to reflect him through the documentary, I think that came out because I'm not sure if he spoke for more than five minutes total for the whole documentary. I mean, you saw a lot of shots of him and there was dramatic music, but. I was just going to say,
0: I can't remember Scott actually saying more than 20 words throughout the entire thing. Like, I don't, I can't. I'm sitting here thinking about it as you all were talking about how he's quiet and everything. I I, I understand his wife did most of the talking during the the documentary. I don't remember him saying anything at all. It was everybody was talking about him. I don't remember him actually speaking.
2: And when he did talk, it was like Teller. He was always talking in a voiceover.
5: Himself speaking, there were were a couple moments. I mean, five minutes is an exaggeration, but it wasn't as, as much as it could have been. It would have been... Maybe nice to hear a little bit more about his youth because he was karting by the age of seven or eight, and he he was the youngest person to get a provisional driver's license at 13 in New Zealand, which was a big deal. So that he could go race, you know, in, a, in a Nissan Centro, I think it was, or whatever. It would have been interesting to see a little bit more about his youth progression and how he came into you know Indy. I, I mean, I learned a lot in terms of him because I, I wasn't very familiar with him, quite honestly, before the documentary. So But in in terms of the pace and and everything, it was a little
1: bit slow. I I would agree with that. And I share all those same sentiments. But one thing I didn't like was that his past was done as a flashback versus a lot of other documentaries about race car drivers are done chronologically. So there's something to be said about that particular style of documentary. For me, I didn't like the, okay, we're going to talk about what happened at you know, Indy and then we're gonna flash back to New Zealand and then we're gonna jump forward to the next race and then we're gonna flash back to New Zealand. It kind of got tiring because I wanted to know the progression like you did, but I also feel like it gave them an excuse to skip over a lot of stuff that might've happened in his formative years because all we did was talk about karting and then Indy car And there's a sub story there about him going to Williams to try out for Formula One and stuff like that. And, and it all kind of got left on the table and I think those are important turning points in his story. And then some of the races, you know, we only got to see like two corners of Detroit and like, show me the track or even mid Ohio. I recognized it because I've driven there and I was like, Oh my God, they're a mid O. And then it was just like, okay, we're in the pit box again. Let's move on to the next thing. And the same thing with the Glen, you know, the most exciting thing there was when Newgarten parked it in the wall coming out of the pit. And then the rest of it was just like, Uh, okay.
5: Yeah, I wasn't really sure what they were trying to get at with with the whole biopic because it didn't go into... It would would have been like other ones, you watch the Son of documentary and things like that. It's like you see a lot of footage of races and, and, you know, awesome passes and and this, that, and the other. And I don't know, they, they showed one or two clips here and there, and they just moved on and would, you know, have silence and pretty music in the background. What did they want the viewer to get out of this documentary? I mean, learn something about him, but I, I feel like there was more that they could have portrayed.
2: Yes, it would have been nice if, if Scott Dixon was was more vocal. And I think it's just, as Tanya I think, said, I think it actually does just represent him. Even when he was talking to the reporters when he got out of the med center at Indy, very brief, whereas a lot of other drivers will will hold longer conversations with each of the press people as they go along. And even the announcer, the clip of him racing the next race at detroit the answers are saying well scott didn't want us to talk about his leg so it's almost like he doesn't he doesn't like being talked about and doesn't like talking about himself but then they made a biopic about him
1: right so that that leads into one of the questions i had going into this conversation which is a couple of times during the film they refer to scott dixon as the greatest of all time i don't know how you guys feel about this or whether you agree or disagree or the listeners agree and disagree to that statement but does he really have the same appeal as a Senna or a Schumacher or a Fangio? I mean, I understand it's not the same level, but does that really matter at the end of the day? From a fandom perspective, does he really have the same appeal to you or I as Senna does or Schumacher?
2: I'd say as a personality, no. As a skilled driver, yes. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of people it. that that fall down that hole. As a personality, I can't stand Kyle Busch. I have to admire him because he's a great driver. I just hate when he wins. <laughs> especially when he wins in the minor leagues and racks up 90-some wins. You know, it's exciting to watch him drive. It's exciting to watch him race. And then once he gets out of the car, I could care less.
3: I'll say I can definitely agree with Crutch on that in aspect of, especially, like, how they are in the car. And as for personality, he doesn't seem to have much. He's a very subtle personality, not very flamboyant like a lot, because a lot of race car drivers are very flashy. He's the exact opposite of that. He doesn't talk about himself and things like that. So, in a way, many race car drivers are much like in the military. We had our fighter pilots and they were very cocky, very egotistical guys and very full of themselves. And a lot of drivers are like that, but he doesn't seem to be, he's more low key.
2: But that is a Kiwi trait. That is a cultural trait of New Zealand where they try not to shine and stand out. So that might be just a product of, of being from New Zealand and having that upbringing. It's very strange when you're an American meeting a bunch of Kiwis and they just, they won't talk about themselves. They don't you know, boast about their accomplishments or anything. They're just like, whatever, I, I, I showed up and I did this and I'm done.
3: I can, I can admire that as a trait in people. I can admire the fact he lets his driving speak for itself.
1: That's the other thing about this film. It just hit Netflix and the content was three years old. So I don't know if they're just kind of scraping the barrel here, just trying to put something out to keep people interested. Same thing with Gentleman Driver and some of the other stuff that's come out.
4: But Netflix buys stuff from other places, so it could have been on any, like, Speed Channel or any one of those other kind of services, and then finally Netflix bought it, and
1: now you see it. Any other final comments on Board Racer before we get to the good stuff?
5: I would say if you're not an IndyCar fan or a Scott Dixon fan, probably pass on it. It's not going to be done in such a way that's going to be very intriguing or have you kind of at the edge of your seat as a non-car or maybe a lesser car enthusiast.
1: I'm going to speak for Sam. He thought it was awesome and none of us know what we're talking about.
0: I think Board Racer or Born Racer is the, the, the documentary equivalent of watching an indie
2: car race. No, no. An Indy race is much more interesting than this documentary. It was like watching Formula One.
4: Officially unsold. <laughs> 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 I wasn't trying to sell it.
1: <laughs> no, thank you. All right. Well, I think we covered that I- ad nauseum at this point. So let's get to the good stuff. Let's go back in time. Let's go to
0: 1974.
1: Oh. <laughs> With the cult classic, Gone in 60 Seconds.
0: Wait,
1: wait, wait. I got my notes. Go for it. You start us off.
0: Start you off. Uh, it was like the how long was it 90 90 minutes 200 hours I don't know but it, it was like a porno seven that, years that so never long. never got to the good stuff it was just like the porn music and everything had the feel it had the same acting level but then it never got to the, there was no money shot it never got anywhere it oh, was wait, wait, trash wait. the whole time I gotta,
1: I gotta add something there because since you went there as, as the film progressed and we get to that epic jump scene towards the end, which I'm sure we'll talk about more.
0: It was like 15 minutes long. That slow motion burnout
1: was like behind the green door. And if you've seen that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So it, it got there, Brad, it definitely got there. So anyway, go ahead.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I open up the comments. I've, I've just got a couple questions about, oh. the, about the movie. like. How come in the beginning, the when they were looking for recruits for the crew, the black guy was like, "Oh yeah, I saw him in Playgirl magazine." Why was he reading Playgirl magazine? Why would he know that that guy was in Playgirl magazine?
4: I don't know. Hey, maybe maybe they're free thinkers. Even what fifty years ago, this is good. This is progressive. Maybe,
0: maybe. maybe. And then why was there a tiger in the parked car
5: at the golf course or wherever they were?
4: (laughs) What?
5: Tiger, wasn't there in the remake of Gone in Sixty Seconds there was a snake or something? Snake and was a Hummer. A snake correct.
0: in the Hummer, yeah, in the parking garage, yeah.
5: <laughs> I think that's a
1: euphemism, the snake and the Hummer. <laughs> there were I
4: the would Hummer actually like Hummer. a hot water heater, like document hider. That was cool.
1: <laughs> that, was, that was really James Bond for that movie. But move
2: too slow. The so- cops are knocking at the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: How many of you have seen both versions of this movie? Now, there were two scenes that were almost identical: the drugs
2: in the Cadillac.
0: The, yeah, and then the the jump scene was—it's not identical, but it's—it was probably taken. Inspiration was taken from that scene. I think the newer one did it a lot better, although not as realistic.
2: Yeah, the, the, the was old one—the old one was a little more realistic, except that whole. Burnout scene, but...
1: Yeah, we'll get into that. So I want to I wanna go gut reactions on this movie from everybody. So we'll start with Mike. What your gut reaction on the film?
2: Oh, it's horrible. It's like a train wreck. A lot of this has to do with how they actually filmed this. You have all this action going on on screen, and then they, they dialogue it all by voiceover because they couldn't get a microphone out to the boat that was next to the airplane. Like, there's this whole conversation going on. You're seeing things happen, but that conversation is not actually happening there. They're just changing money, but the conversations being played over it—dialogue mistakes that they could have taken two seconds to re-record. Either they're trying to portray them as fumbling idiots, <laughs> or they need to do more reshoots. Just all the voiceovers—the collect call to the wedding. <laughs> the- <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I mean, there's so many things, right?
2: The, the the scene where they're walking and talking through like the park, but everything is out of focus. <laughs> So, Chrissy, what about you? What did you think? I wasn't sure what was going on. Like, the movie
5: starts, and it's, like, a construction scene. And you've seen, like, the footage from, like, Sesame Street, like, back in the 70s when they would, like, go out into parks with, like, big construction equipment and crap. I thought, like, I was like, what is this? <laughs> and then, like, the wedding thing happened, and, like, I mean, the cat thing made me laugh. and But I, I was just like, I, I don't know. And... I said to mike I, it's like this guy produced the film with his own money but he apparently had never seen a film before
3: i always take into consideration a it's from the 70s so film at that time wasn't the greatest to begin with so i have to always factor that in as for storyline it really was long and draw out to me it was very difficult to watch it the whole way through But I can imagine that back then, because there were no movies very common like that, and I guess that would have been considered huge action at that time. Because if you compare it to other movies, you didn't have that sort of scenes going on. So the concept for it was maybe possible. The follow through wasn't there. I don't think the cameras had the ability. Definitely the audio stuff wasn't at the ability needed. I'd say it's like this. It's Hollywood. I can't you can't take anything they take as serious it's out there for entertainment was the old one entertaining Eh, kind of but it's i'm it's not on my top 10 list to watch
4: jess when eric told me that that movie was shot without a script i was never less surprised in my entire life (laughs) it was so bad i mean it was one of those like the movie ended credits and eric and i look at each other and we're like well that was pardon my language fucking awful like he was so angry like i cannot express to you like i know it's his turn soon but like i cannot express to you how angry eric was until he fell asleep that night and he was angry when he woke up in the morning for the record he was still like god damn it that movie was awful it was awful i can't believe it even made it Dude! terrible absolutely <laughs> terrible but like I guess if we watch it again because we know it's terrible it would be really funny but for a first time watching it was so bad and the voiceover w- Mike you're so right like <laughs> I was like do you think they just didn't have boom mics like why do you think they had to do this <laughs> like,
2: I will say that is the second time I watched it because oh. I watched it a long time ago but I had to rewatch it to refresh my memory of just how bad it was for this. It does not get better on the second watch. Just, no.
0: Well, Jess, to, to Jess's point, I'm wondering if it would have been better as a silent film, like no no dialogue, but just just the car sounds. Even if like when people are supposed to be talking, just play car sounds. It would have been great. It would have sounded just as good. My, my next point. I'm, I'm halfway through the movie, and I'm trying to, to figure out what's going on, why they're stealing these cars, where's the drama? Like in the first, in the, the remake, there's a lot of drama. His brother gets in trouble with the wrong guys, and he's gotta go save them, and, and this, that, and the other. And then finally, we get halfway through, and it's a David and Goliath story. It's the little guy versus big insurance. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, they're going after Geico. Now this is something <laughs> I can get behind. So they tried stealing that one car, from the dealership it was like a challenger or a cuda or something this movie was shot in 74 the eleanor mustang was a 73. why not just walk down to the local ford dealer take one for a test drive and never come back i don't understand why they had to go through all this rigmarole they looked for how many did they find that they couldn't steal like seventeen thousand before they could actually take one i mean what the fuck? this this was like a one-year-old mustang this is, not, this is not like the, the GT500 or GT350 or whatever from the remake. It's like a, this rare, rare classic that you can't find. You can walk down to the freaking Piggly Wiggly and find one in the parking lot. <laughs> and it's a terrible Mustang, too. It's one nobody wants. <laughs> well, apparently he wanted it.
2: It was the last real Mustang, according to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Until the next one
2: came out. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: And then the two of my favorite quotes from the movie. The first one was the little old lady talking to the police, and I ruined my perfectly good umbrella. <laughs> and that, then that was twenty-five percent of the dialogue. That was the, <laughs> that was that was the best line of the movie. The second best line is during the Eleanor chase, there th- on the voiceover. There's this couple that says, "Sounds like it's finally over," and then the woman says, "Finally." That's how I felt at the end of the movie.
1: No. it feels like it's
0: finally over
1: and finally it's over you didn't like the quote at the end see you later billy
0: okay so to touch on that why why is it whenever they show like young african-american kids they're always smoking pot and dubbing it up in this like giant cadillac slow rolling down uh, down Crenshaw boulevard but why why do they always have to i don't understand that, that's just a little tangent to it kinda of irked me a little bit. I was, bit, but I I was gonna it. make
1: the same tangent because I didn't understand. And we went back to them what? Not once, not twice, but three times. And they were the part of the ending too. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. I mean it, it, it provided zero value to the movie whatsoever, right?
2: Well, so I wanna I wanna fix a couple things. They were you on the car for a drug kingpin, but you probably missed it because it was in a voiceover. <laughs>
0: I, I muted the I muted the movie part way through. I turned it into a silent film.
2: And yeah, that scene where they're stealing back the car that they VIN swapped from a dealership in their town. I mean, that's just bad car, car stealing right there. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you VIN swap a car and then put a vanity tag back on it and try and sell it locally, you yeah, know.
0: But they, they do it all during the day. Do they not have nighttime in California?
1: Okay, since we're talking about that, what about the scene at the airport? where they're literally standing on the curb at arrivals. And they're like, oh, here comes that Burgundy Rolls. And the the dude walks away and leaves his keys in it. And it was like the third car they did that to until they tried to, quote unquote, steal the first Eleanor. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. This is not how this movie is going to go. We got 48 cars. We're going to literally stand here on the curb and just wait for him to drop them off like it's Hertz rental. I was like, what is this?
3: So to highlight on Brad's comment about no uh, nighttime in Los Angeles, you saw how bad the filming was during the day. Do you seriously want to have tried to see what it would have looked like at night? <laughs> it could have been like Cloverfield.
5: There was one, there was one nighttime bitch. scene. They stole, he stole the one Eleanor, I think, from the guys driveway at night. And he borrowed it. Chased him, and then they returned the car because, <laughs> because, because do you he remember, wasn't
0: insured.
4: Do you remember that whole scene, though? I was like, What is happening? All you see are really dim headlights. Like they could be anywhere. They could be driving around a parking lot. There is no, you see nothing. It was so bad.
0: It's because they were driving around the parking lot for like 15 minutes before he took the
2: car home. With a camera they borrowed from the library with (laughs) 1970s headlights.
1: God, so so to Dan's point earlier about being a 70s film, there's no other films before that. I I will correct you there. The Seven Ups had long car chase scenes, Bullet had long car chase scenes, but what I felt- Herbie. Herbie, yeah, Herbie. <laughs> what I felt was a ripple, was a scene towards the end of the movie where he's got 93 Chrysler police cars of every shape and form that existed, chasing him down that, what, six lane highway all of a sudden. And it was like Vanishing Point, which came out three years before Gone in 60 Seconds. And I felt like he kind of ripped that scene off a little bit from Vanishing Point. Because if you've seen the original one, he's in The Challenger. He's headed towards the bulldozers with the cops behind him. And then, you know, boom, the movie kind of ends. So I felt like it was a Kowalski moment there. And I
3: was like, man, I've already seen this before. I'm just going to say for massive amounts of cop cars chasing a vehicle down the highway, O.J. did it best. I will say the scene very
1: much towards the end with the car wash. I mean, talk about, like, you knew they ran out of ideas at that point, right? And you're just like, they don't know how to end this thing, because it's been 45 minutes that he's been driving around like a maniac. But I nearly fell out of my chair when the lady came out, and he did this, like, terrible car swap, and the wrecked Eleanor comes out of the car wash, and then she just faints into the dude. (laughs) like, you have got to be kidding me. You know, I, I thought that was probably the best comedic part of the movie, in my opinion. But otherwise, God, what a dumpster fire.
5: But it's a brilliant dumpster fire when you understand the backstory of
1: it. But, but let's let Dan get his
3: comment in. And- well, I'm just going to say, it's somewhat of a cult classic. But how many cult classics are really, like, phenomenal movies? They normally aren't that good yeah but you could I mean, you could say rocky horror is a cult classic and there's ones like reefer madness
1: that's a cult classic and that's a train wreck and a half Ma- mall rats and clerks cult classics they're all yeah. not that as bad as this <laughs> okay i gotta say any of the skew view films i'm fans of so i think is <laughs> the only person that now is on the other side of the argument we all think this is a Flaming bag of dog poo that somebody left on our doorstep that we were somehow obligated to watch. So she's actually surprisingly in the camp has flipped overnight from raging dumpster fire to epic movie. And she's going to (laughs) explain to us why.
5: I mean it is a raging dumpster fire that you just want to stand <laughs> next to and bask in the glow and the warmth of those flames okay <laughs> when you understand what went into this movie or didn't go into this movie for me it completely changed my perspective and appreciation for it i went into it completely agree with what i saying and i went into it fully aware that this is a 1974 movie, which means it was gonna have terrible dialogue, very little dialogue, poor acting skills, the cinematography wasn't gonna be there, and it was gonna be long, because in the 70s, that's kind of how a lot of the movies were. But, Chrissy mentioned it earlier, the Henry Halecki, known as Toby, the car crash king, as he's been, uh, come to be known as. Yes, he did direct, produce, uh, fund, star in this movie. It was his baby. All the cars basically were his. So he wrecked his own vehicles in this movie. As Jess said, there was no script. There was barely a script. There was a few swishes of dialogue just to kind of guide things, but there was no script and it was obvious. The dialogue was lacking. There really were no professional actors. The other actors were his friends or family members, okay?
1: So it's a GTM movie all of a sudden, say? That's what I'm
3: taking from this.
5: But this man, we talk about send it. This man is full send, okay? That is how he lived his life. He didn't get permission to make this movie. The pedestrians were real pedestrians. Okay? The car crashes were all real. People almost died. People not of the movie were getting into accidents. People were watching thinking a real-life police chase was happening. He didn't tell anybody. For all we know, the Umbrella Woman, that was probably real. (laughs) He probably was upset about her umbrella. I mean, my mind is blown when I knew that. And it's a 40-minute car chasing, the longest car chasing in the history of film. That car, that Eleanor, was the only car to be in that scene. It was 40 minutes of that one car. It took all that beating, and it still runs today. He installed a NASCAR roll cage in it. There's a really good Drive Tribe article that that outlines a lot of this. You can find more information on Wikipedia where they pulled a lot about, I guess the DVD has some backstories in there that you can get if you own the DVD. And
1: we'll post some links to this stuff for the list. They
5: installed the NASCAR roll cage to protect himself. The transmission got chained to the body so it wouldn't fall out. There's like three-inch thick steel plates underneath the thing to keep everything inside. He apparently, MacGyver, individual locking rear brakes... I think he tweaked the engine so he even had more power. I mean, he drove the thing. That whole 40 minutes, it took that beating. The scene, if you recall, he's going down the highway and he's gonna do what most people do on the highway, take that exit from the left lane and he spins out, was unplanned. That was an accident. He hit that telephone pole at over 90 miles an hour. He bit it, folks. He for real bit it. Okay? And he got hurt, and we had not had the pause, but they had the footage, and they used it, and they picked back up when he was feeling better <laughs> from that scene. They kept down telephone pole, and they kind of picked it all back up and started going. The car still ran. They had to fix it up a little bit, but it still ran. That scene was real. Okay? All the other wrecked police cars, all that stuff, real. They were actually <laughs> crashing them. The Cadillac scene at the dealership, Supposedly, the the dealership owner, that was the dealership owner. His face, upset when the cars got crashed. is because they accidentally got crashed. (laughs) He put two of his own Cadillacs at the front line of the line of Cadillacs at the dealer. And when they T-boned the first cars, according to the information, it was only supposed to impact the first two cars, which were his, except they put some oil underneath the cars to make them oh. slide. Except they kind of hit it too much force, a little too much uh, oil, and he totaled <laughs> the dealer's cars. And he had to buy them. <laughs> I mean, this is some of the epicness that I turn around and I'm like, oh my God. I mean, it was the most authentic car chasing that you're ever going to see because. Fast and the Furious can't compete with that. CGI, this, that, and the other car, flipping and barrel rolling. No, he he launched Eleanor off that ramp. It was like, he, he made it 30 foot high, I think, or almost 130 foot in distance. He compacted 10 vertebrae on the landing. He legit launched that car without any gas catapult turbines like they do today. No, he drove it, sent it. He sent it. <laughs> Full send, 40 minutes of full send with, the, with people not even knowing it was real. I mean, at one point I thought like it's red asphalt. I mean, they had people crashing left right on the bridge and all this stuff. And I was like, oh my God, people are getting hurt in this. This is chaos because it was people. It was a- <laughs> legitimate chaos. And for that reason, the dumpster fire is amazing.
1: So, with that being said, with this newfound knowledge, does it change your opinion of the
2: movie? It gives me a question. When he's stopped in the park, surrounded by the cops, and there's that one guy lying on the sidewalk in front of him, blocking the car's path, and he crawls back. Did that guy know what the hell was going on?
5: (laughs) I wondered that after reading some of this. Because there's another scene, I think that was near the car dealership, where the Blue Belvedere was they were trying to like do the police blockade and he was supposed to break and then do like a like a turn except he missed the brake marker and actually T-Bone like he almost killed the guy that was there like the dude <laughs> bailed because he's like I think he missed the brake zone and like apparently in the movie it's all the real footage like the dude dived out of the way and almost got clobbered. <laughs> I mean it was just full send. Full send. So were the cop cars real cop cars? No. So he bought all all the cars in there, he bought off, uh, I forget where, they were like a couple hundred bucks each or something. So they weren't like legitimate, like the actual police cars, but representative of. The police
2: chase probably got away with being 40 minutes because all the other cops said, ah, there's other cops chasing them. he's fine.
1: (laughs) So I read, they wrecked 93 cars in that movie total. But Tanya's got another little fun fact for when we go on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? This is a trilogy.
5: Yes. What? Well, it's a trilogy in the sense that he had three kind of movies. So he had another one that was called um, Junk Man, <laughs> which I think he totaled something like over 200 cars or something ridiculous like that. But there's also something very weird about how he took footage from Also Gone in 60 Seconds and reused <laughs> this movie, et cetera, et cetera. But then he was actually going to make a second Gone in 60 Seconds, which, unfortunately, he, because he's full send in his life, he actually passed away during the movie because he was doing all his stunts. He had some crazy stunt of this water tower that was going to fall over when he pulled it with this dump truck and... <laughs> Unfortunately, um, as the story goes, there was a cable that prematurely snapped. And when it snapped, it cut a telephone pole or some sort down and it actually hit him. And so he basically died from the, the impact of that telephone pole hitting him. Um, so who knows what that movie would have brought us. So what they ended up doing, I believe, is the third movie kind of in his trilogy of movies was Deadline Auto, which takes a lot of footage, I think, from what was going to be Gone in 60 Seconds too and does a whole other compilation of stealing footage from Junkman and then the first gone in 60 seconds. I don't know, it's completely ridiculous. He died at, I think, 48 years old. So in in my head, this guy, I'm like, I if he had not passed away, like how would car chase scenes been different today? Because he was very obviously authentic about it and not safe. So clearly somebody would have came down on him and there would have been, you know, changes in the way he does things. But I I really wonder now having seen that and learned a little bit more about him, how modern day car chases and car movies would have probably been completely different with his type of cinematic take.
3: With all the uh, authentic reactions from people not being aware of what was going on, the thing that pops out to me is this was the 1970s automotive version of Blair Witch. (laughs) it was rough it was rough but no
1: i mean now that we've gotten that information i think i have a like tanya i have a different
0: appreciation for it i i've got two points one i'm impressed i'm a little less impressed because i was holding on for tanya to say that they actually stole the cars but that, that that didn't come because it is authentic as she made it sound. I mean, maybe they actually did steal the cars. Maybe this was just a documentary on how ridiculous <laughs> all these people were. It was jackass in the seventies. My second point is I still stand by the silent film idea but I think it would be better if Tanya narrated like March of the Penguins and more <laughs> I think Tanya should narrate in 60 seconds. I
5: mean, there was the first 40 minutes and then there was the second 40 minutes. <laughs> You just had to get past the first 40 minutes <laughs> and then past the second 40 minutes.
0: <laughs> you just have to skip Jar Jar Binks.
5: I mean, it was terrible, but that, knowing everything I know now, I'm just like, wow. So see you later, Billy.
0: Now,
1: we're going to pop our collars. We're going to put on our leather cropped jackets and fast forward into 1987 with No Man's Land starring Charlie Sheen and D.B. Sweeney. Most of you know who Charlie Sheen is, you know, he was obviously very famous later on, uh, was it Two and a Half Men or- yeah. I was
4: like, he's famous for a lot more than
1: that. <laughs> yeah. D.B. Sweeney, some of you may not recognize him right away until you see him. He was the, the co-star on the movie, The Cutting Edge, which was pretty uh, pretty well-known movie in the eighties. And when Tanya recommended this movie, she came to me and said, hey, did you see this movie that's on voodoo about stealing Porsches? And I said, well, you had my attention at Porsche, so I gotta go check this thing out. Little did I know what it was gonna turn into.
5: And I will say recommended is a very strong
4: word that I probably didn't use. <laughs> I think the appropriate term is she pointed out.
1: So, uh, well, let's do gut reaction on this movie. I've got some interesting little tidbits for this one as well.
0: So, I thought it was interesting that they didn't steal any non 911 Porsches. I mean, this is the 80s. There were plenty of other Porsches out there to steal. They don't want a 924, what the hell's wrong with them? That's the one I'd go for.
1: But I agree with you, Brad. I mean, I would have expected to see, especially in the in the repair shops, a 944s, a 928, you know, something else. It was just all 911s, which is,
5: you know, neither here nor there. I wanted to see a 914, even, at least in the garage shop.
0: And then, I was, I think I talked about this a little bit on Slack, but. It's essentially the same story as Point Break, as the Fast and the Furious. I mean, undercover police officer infiltrates, falls in love, becomes best friends. Ted Berig is a very eighties, you know, cocaine snorter name. So Ted is essentially Dominic Toretto Oh, it's he—he's not a killer. He wouldn't do it. It's not his fault. No, no, no. And then Brian Spillner, or you know Brian O'Connor, or whatever. Who I thought, by the way, they, the actor who played him—what was it? E. Sweeney. Yeah, I thought it was John Cusack. They kind of have a very similar look. Because I was like, I didn't know John Cusack was in this. No, no, no. It was, but yeah, it's essentially the same movie as the Fast and the Furious. Basically so, when you break it down. It's,
1: it's funny you bring that up. So that's a major point. There's a lot of articles about that. There's there's some that we'll post links to that people can read about. Obviously, this came out twenty years before the Fast and the Furious did it. And the premise is the same. That scene with Randy Quaid in the diner when he's telling him about stuff and the beginning where he's working on the three fifty-six, which by the way is one of the inconsistency problems I have with the movie, because that wasn't a three fifty-six, it was some chop the beetle kit car thing. And that was the only non-911 that we got to see. And thankfully we only really saw it one other time and it was a rotting pile of mess. But that whole thing played out exactly like Fast and the Furious. And you can see where FNF got its inspiration from. Now, at one point, as I'm giving Tanya the play-by-play watching the movie, she's like, oh, just wait, it turns into Gone in 60 Seconds. And then it'll come back to the Fast and the Furious. And I, and I saw some of that in the film and there's a ton of inconsistencies But the dialogue was pretty good. It had a decent story. And there's a reason for that. It's because it was written by Dick Wolf. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He's the longtime writer from Law & Order. In addition to that, the executive producer of the film, you may come to find also as a surprise, was Ron Howard. So Apollo 13. and And then there were other famous people actually a part of this movie. So as low budget, and and funky and cut up as it was, it had a very large backing to it. So this could have been the Fast and the Furious of the 80s. And maybe we were just too young to realize it when it came out and we just never
4: heard about it. And it went to the archive and, and, and that was that. Oh, the moment I was seeing the fashion, I really stopped paying attention to the movie.
1: It is straight 80s down to the aquanet and the gel and the, you know, the multiple, pink shirts and the whole nine yards. like
4: It's like an episode of Miami Vice. The one woman with the really wide shouldered suit that when she turns around the club, there is no shirt. And it's like taped on. I just, I, I, I was, yeah, that was it. That was, but during,
1: I, that was during the obligatory band scene, which is very typical in the eighties movie. We started to crack up. We're like, hey, it's jam out time. Huey Lewis in the news is going to come on next. I mean, it's like, well, I mean, it, was, it had so many tropes in it. But to Brad's point, the sister was Toretto's sister. It was the same storyline we've come to know now, but we didn't know about this little gem from
3: 1987. I've not had the pleasure of seeing it, so I'm interested to see what the rest of the review has to say.
1: Oh, God, you know, I had a lot of fun playing spot the car in the background. So I'm going to start with that. So there's a
0: cabrio, It's all a cabrio.
1: There was a, there was a Mark 1 Jetta. There was a 16 valve Scirocco they used three times in the movie. It was bright red, I found a Audi GT Coupe. There was all sorts of stuff in the background that it was just like, oh, look at that, oh, look at that. I even sent some screenshots to Tanya, you know, about it and whatnot. Posted one of them on, on Instagram, as a matter of fact. And so that was kind of fun to see all those cars. There was some, you know, piece of junk Renault in there, a bunch of other stuff.
5: It was it was fun to see the Porsches, and it was fun to, to play you know, I spy and see, you know, the older eighties cars and whatnot that you know you don't see in modern day movies. And that aspect was fun. And I mean it
1: But there's one other comment I want to make on the i Spy. The by today's standards, half a million dollar Ferrari five twelve BB that showed up multiple times in the background of this movie was beyond anything I could comprehend because the first time you see it in the police impound garage underground randy quaid like just walks by it nonchalantly i'm like there's a half a million dollar ferrari sitting there basically in hock and i was like this makes no sense they use the car again in another scene while they're they're looking across the street at a black slant nose 930 and db sweeney turns to charlie sheen and he goes why don't we just take the ferrari and charlie sheen's like ah that's italian trash right and then he's got his eyes on (laughs) eyes on this this 930 and i'm like I, I just didn't understand. I wanted to know whose car that. Maybe that's Ron Howard's car or Dick Wolf's car or something like. It just didn't make sense to have such an expensive vehicle in the scene. It just was out of place with the rest of the cars. I had an issue with the inconsistencies. Started with the first driving sequence after he goes to rescue. Charlie Sheen from the top of like, I don't know, Mulholland Drive or something, right? Because it takes place in California like everything else. And it's in the middle of the night and it's a Cabrio. This is the first time I noticed that they switch cars midway through the scene. Being a Porsche guy, you kind of tell these things with the headlights on a 911. There's three different style of headlights. There's this like really small kind of six inch round with this big surround around it. And that's a US spec headlight. The early cars had a chrome surround, and then the European cars had nothing. It was a big glass lens that makes the bug eyes look really, really big. And so you notice that they, they use three different gray cabrios, and they're just from different eras for some reason, and they keep switching them up but that wasn't the big problem. The big problem is they're going down this road and Charlie Sheen is literally goading him much like some of the scenes with Toretto and Brian, where he's like, go faster. You can go faster. Just push it. And they're driving kind of crazy down this windy road. And then they pan to DB Sweeney's feet and he goes into a corner and he pops the clutch and hits the brakes. And I'm like, what is going on? You're in the 9 11 And then the scene, they're completely sideways. And I'm like, was this on purpose? Or this is ridiculous, right? And it's like just some of the driving stuff was just just nutty. And I'm like, I get it for effect, but it just it didn't look good. My favorite being cell phone rings right after they steal the slant nose 9-11. And Charlie Sheen goes to go pick it up and you hear the audio as he's kind of blip shifting and shifting gears, but you're looking at the stick shift and it's not moving. And I'm like, this is so messed up, right? It's just so so bad editing, bad chase scenes, just bad consistency with the cars.
5: But we haven't touched on the car car chase scene in this movie.
1: The one and only car chase scene in this movie.
5: Unfortunately, I was hoping for more and there was only that one and I know we all had special reactions to the realism of that car chase scene. Because unlike Gone in 60 Seconds, where these, the cars were actually doing the carnage, you know, we had the, the blue bus, school bus, <laughs> that just launched and catapulted through the air. And then we had the Camaro that launched through the side of a Pepsi tractor trailer truck and, and,
4: and what, what came out of that truck, Jess? A co- nothing. A conveniently empty Pepsi tractor
1: trailer truck. We believe that the budget wasn't enough that they could put soda cans in there to just <laughs> hit them and explode them. I don't know that the budget was very high on this film outside of the Porsches, but to Tanya's point, that there is one chasing, it lasts maybe a total of seven or eight minutes. Of those eight minutes, four of them are spent watching Charlie Sheen and D.B. Sweeney have a dialogue while they're hiding in a, basically in a warehouse. And they're talking about some girl and, oh, she's so pretty. Meanwhile, the Camaro is like lurking, like Knight Rider, just kind of like looking for them. And it's these two dudes, like one's this like, greasy, like Eastern block guy. And the other dude is like some random Guido from New York. And they're like totally irrelevant to the story. You never really see them again. And they're actually confused with one of the major bad cops in the movie. And the chasing is horrendous. The Camaro's a dog and this 930, you can hear them like short shifting it. And just like, they're doing like 30 miles an hour. And they're doing one wheel burnouts with the Camaro. And then the best part is when they go in to the warehouse, Camaro's like shiny and new looking or whatever and they're just literally driving around there at 5 miles an hour looking for this Porsche which is actually really easy to see cuz it's silver and everything else is you know just dark they drive right by them. they're like okay this is weird and then there's this whole kerfuffle and they pull out and as soon as they pull out which they go out the door they came in the Camaro is completely bashed up in the front like it's already been in 12 accidents <laughs> You're like what the heck is going on here then they T-bone a Lincoln that basically destroy it. Bus goes into the air. And I mean, I had seen the scene on YouTube because Tanya sent it to me, which is what really piqued my interest about this movie. When Jess saw the bus go basically into orbit, she just busted out laughing. And then I was like, all right, we're good. We're, we got another, you know, 35 minutes to go. We, we're going to make it to the end here. What a disaster that was. I mean, they could have cut the chase scene out and it, it made no difference.
5: Well, the chasing killed me, too, because I'm like, come on, really? This Camaro was up the tail of his 930? Like, it couldn't shake him?
1: And I know Dan's going to tell me, well, it could have been a Z28 and a an IROC and blah, blah, and a 350 and 900 horsepower. Dude, it was an RS base model, two-tone, T-top turd. I mean, I can't get enough T's in there. This car was bottom of the barrel, off the used car lot. Like, there was nothing redeeming about this car. There was no way in hell it was catching this 911 in real life.
2: From the era of 200-horsepower V8s.
1: <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> I had, had one. bottom of the barrel probably had the inline 960 You never heard the audio from the Camaro. You just heard the 911s. And that's one thing I will give them credit for. There are many movies that use the sound of a 911, and you guys have heard this on the the Name That Tune episode that we did. It's a very distinct sound. I hear it all the time in movies and I just cringe when they show a Honda Civic and it's got a 911 sound or something. I'm just like, oh God. This movie was legitimate sounds. When they fired up a 911 in the background, you heard it. It was the actual sound. When they were using it in a scene, it was the actual car. And you could tell that sound and it sounded good. But yeah, that was a disaster. And we're gonna post the link to the chase scene as part of the show notes, cause it's available on YouTube. So you can check it out for yourself and have a good laugh. Uh, it's definitely worth it. And obviously check out the film. It's still available on Voodoo. If you're interested. But
5: any final comments? I chose to watch it because I apparently had nothing else to do in my life at that moment. You know, it's kind of typical 80s movie, um, so I wasn't going into it and expecting too much. It met those expectations, so I wasn't neither pleased nor overly displeased. I will say, I got all the way to the end, and the end scene... God. not to give spoilers away because there's people who haven't seen it and they might want to go watch this movie but it kind of just ends and i and i and i sat there and i'm laying on my couch and I'm like did, did this just end like this and then it goes black and the credits come up and i literally sat up and said to no one what a trash movie it was it was special it It at least had a plot. Whether it was a good one or not, it had one, unlike The Gone in 60 Seconds, (laughs) which... The plot was just to have a 40-minute car chase, but at least there was a plot here. The acting was probably on par for the time frame. I mean, I wouldn't say either of them are truly, you know, Golden Globe Academy Award-winning actors, clearly. I mean. You don't see D.B. Sweeney doing too much after Cutting Edge and whatnot, and, well, we all know Charlie Sheen, so.
2: Well, I'll just say, I didn't have the, the displeasure of watching this, but if you want a movie with Charlie Sheen and a good car chase, you need to watch The Chase from 1994. That's a, like, O.J. Simpson-style slow highway chase.
3: So, since I haven't seen the movie, but you guys have referred to it as possibly an older concept of Fast and Furious. It makes me wonder for the fact car culture wasn't as big, but when Fast and Furious came out, the whole import tuner scene was starting to grow and becoming a big thing. Uh, it makes you wonder if there would have been that car scene at that time. Would there have been more of it? Would it have grown? Would it have become a franchise much like Fast and Furious has been?
4: Well, if you'd seen the last scene, no. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I
1: want to spoil it for you, so you got to watch it. You can, you can watch it for free on YouTube <laughs> let us know about that but i will say they're in closing there is something special about 80s movie and tv it's something my dad used to call the obligatory toilet scene and for whatever reason there's always like a toilet or bathroom scene like in movies from the 80s and i don't want to spoil it but there is one in this movie and when i saw it i busted up laughing i was just like
2: well they need they need to shoot a scene somewhere where they can do their coke and not get caught they need to be able to clean up easy (laughs) And that's the only way they get through those movies.
1: All right. So up next is our final film, which is The Lost Bullet. Another recommendation from Tanya. I'm going to continue to use that word though she doesn't like it. It is a newer film from 2020 available on Netflix, and the upside is you can watch it in the original French with subtitles, which we did, and I know Tanya did as well, but it is actually dubbed in English, so you can watch it in just without having to deal with the subtitles or learning French or anything like that. I think the first question about this movie, if you watched it, is, is it really a car movie? And I'd like to argue yes, and we'll, we'll, I think we'll get to that.
3: For a second, I thought you were going to throw the recommendation blame on me, because I remember sending you a message about it. I recall your response being, well, I guess I have to now, because... The reason I watched this movie was a friend of mine had watched it and threw the question out there, being like, Hey, all my friends that weld, have you watched this movie? So I was intrigued. I'm like, Okay, well, let me have a look at this. And within the first like 30 seconds of the movie, you see some really horrible welds. And it's like, Okay. And then you (laughs) see what those welds on the car are supposed to hold up to later. And you're like, Yeah, that wouldn't happen. Although I am intrigued by the design of how he uses the stuff to hook vehicles and everything but is it a car movie? I would say yes, in a sense it does have like some chase scenes and things like that. The storyline's not so much car based in, in a sense, but it is for the fact that like the Citroen or whatever it was, I don't even know. Renault, it was Renault. Okay. <laughs> anyway,
4: 21 Turbo. Yeah, so. <laughs> two, liter, two liter, two <laughs> liter.
3: Yes, so obviously it was a very key vehicle for the characters in the movie. For me not being a fan I was like okay it's just another square car right up your alley another square, square car. no 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 square bodies and square cars are different <laughs> and that was why I sent it to you because I know you're into like European cars so that's why I asked you if you'd seen it because I was curious I figured you'd hit me back and like yeah this is the significance of this car but so I'm sure there's some history to that car and it's it being as pristine in that movie and why it was such a possession of the owner of it but As a car movie, I would say, yeah, but it also had a storyline that went away from car stuff.
1: I'll put my two cents in there. I felt it was a modern take on a Statham movie with an all-French cast. I really liked the main actor. I thought he did a good job. I liked the fight scenes. I thought they were really raw compared to some of the overly produced action movies we see these days. I liked the way it was filmed. I thought it had a good story. It kept me interested the entire time. You know, I didn't start to snooze halfway through it. It was, it was just good. It was inviting. I will add a piece of color for the anime fans out there. I thought Shiraz played by Ramsey Badia. I thought he would be a good casting choice for the Golgo 13 movie. So if you've ever seen that anime, uh, Gogo Thirteen is what they based the professional off of. So he's an assassin, all this kind of thing. He looks exactly like him. So I thought that was kind of cool. I was sad to, you know, see his character removed from the story, but it was important that you know to to progress it.
5: I I saw it on Netflix, and the cover art, which I think they've changed recently. So when I saw it on Netflix, the cover art was the R twenty one, with like this uh, demolition front end on it in what seemed to be a chase scene of some sort. And I think I actually like Googled and like YouTube, and then I caught like a glimpse of the chase scene. I was like, all right, I'm uh, gonna watch this um, all the way through. Um, and I wasn't sure what I was going to get because, okay, it's a French movie, blah, blah, blah. But I, I thought it was a actually pretty decent action movie, which I think is car adjacent. Maybe it's not in the same way as Fast and the Furious, but I feel like it has the potential to sort of generate sequels that they take it in that direction, because there were parts throughout the movie where it was very suggestive that there could be more to having the car's involvement in the storyline. There was a scene in in sort of the the end of the first half of it where they kind of go into that little garage and there's just a line of, I don't know, a dozen Renaults of, you know, every color of the rainbow sitting there and you're like salivating.
1: McGann rs's to be very very particular about it i was super geeked about that scene i was like where are we going now i will take the black one and the red one thank you very much
5: exactly i was like oh this is going to get really good we're going to have like this chase scene down the highways with all these cars zipping back and forth and then they didn't do anything with it and it's like oh okay but it, it it left i feel like they 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 used it in its potential for maybe a sequel and there's a forbes article that talks about this movie and kind of reviews it. And it it gave it a fairly positive review. And at the end, uh, they were saying that the main main actor there, Alban Lenoir, so according to Alban Lenoir, Lost Bullet was written with sequels in mind. So So, maybe a future sequel will have more cars in it.
1: You were were reminded me of something, because there is one part of the movie that I didn't understand, and maybe Tanya read more about it, and she can fill me in. Do you guys remember the scene where he's kind of in the dark and he asked to work longer in the police, uh, the motor pool there, and he's building a motor and you never see the car that he's putting it in, but you can tell he's building a race engine because he's got independent throttle bodies and a bunch of other stuff. And it's up on the engine crane. He kind of rolls it away and then they pan away and they go somewhere else and you never see it again. And I thought that he was building this R21, but in reality that was you know Shiraz's car or whatever. So, I'm wondering if that's gonna be a thread that they pull through into the next movie, or we were just supposed to ignore that as just something that didn't get put on the cutting room floor.
3: So with that engine, when he's asking to work longer, that was so, if I recall the timeline correctly, that's when he was still on kind of like the work release from the prison. And they're like, okay, yeah, we'll buy you some more time to do this. Then like they were saying, like the whole romance aspect with him and the, the one character, it's out of the blue that I go for nine months. So. Who knows what happened to that engine during that nine months? So it may have wound up in one of those cars for all we know, but it would definitely be interesting. That may have just been there as filler, but it's hard to tell. It possibly
5: does lend itself there's there's different aspects just like the scene where they go into the garage with the the 10 or 12 Magans that are they're sitting there it's like ooh, this is exciting but we didn't do anything with it is that also another thread that's going to you know they're setting the scene here they set a scene in this first movie to develop later movies maybe i don't know we'll have to see
0: i would love to see that motor in their ford Mondeo. <laughs> So we talked about movies it feels like. I
1: thought it also gave me a little bit of Handsome Rob from The Italian Job. So if you remember the original movie or the remake, Statham played Handsome Rob, who was the mechanic that was souping up the Mini Coopers. So it had also that a little bit of tribute to that in my mind with him working in the garage and all that kind of stuff.
4: Well, because that's the whole premise. Like the whole setup at the very start, which is why I was a little mad at it, was that like he's some kind of genius, you know, he can... Make a, a Renault Clio that can go through four concrete walls. Oh my you God! Know? <laughs> like you know, <laughs> so he's an absolute genius fabricator. And so yeah, like they show that whole room. You're like, oh my God, how is he gonna trick these out? Mm-hmm. And then like it doesn't happen. But of course, the hooks on the front of the the two liter. I'm just thinking calling it the two liter. That was amazing. And when it like yanked. <laughs> the back axle. Like, I was just like, oh my god, I love this. True. But like, yeah, there's a lot of potential for them to like showcase the talents of that. Um, and they they removed all of the other people in his storyline, so it's pretty clear to ask whoever the hell they want. In <coughs>
5: my opinion, they left the door open with, with how it ended is, you know, I, the storyline he he's he's got his sordid pass and he ends up you know busting through this jewelry store four walls of concrete he overshot um, he, was, he didn't even you know, screen his wrist. He was perfect I mean he wasn't a harness um, he this tricked out Cleo and he the harness gets stuck so he can't get out of the car and he gets arrested and he goes to jail. but then the police recognize this detective on this drug task force recognizes the potential in this guy in in, in, the, in these cars, and, and they're in this task force that are, these drug sellers are constantly getting away in, in really fast BMWs and other cars, and so they're always having to do chases, and so they wanted to utilize his skills in beefing up their cars to be able to chase the, the go-fasts.
2: Um, <laughs> the <drug laughs> That's the fast. They, um,
1: yeah, they call them the go-fasts, but uh, that was similar to the Fast and the Furious at that point.
2: I was gonna say, I mean, at that point, aren't you, isn't that like saying, Hey, you were really good at dealing drugs on the street. Why don't you be a pharmacist?
5: Well, they pulled him in while he was still basically incarcerated and they were having him do side work. And then they pulled him out. Um, basically, they, they said, if you come work for us and you're our personal mechanic, essentially, we're kind of going to levy the rest of your charges here and, and reduce your, your sentence. And then the whole thing happens, and he, then Minnie's accused of, of murder, basically, and then the rest of the movie, and he didn't do it, and the rest of the movie is him trying to prove his innocence. Marvelous things with the, the two-leader ensue <laughs> towards the end of the movie, and there's, there's a nice chase scene at the end with it, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, that leads you all the way to the end. It all gets resolved, and you're like, well, I could see this, the sequel opening up, okay? He, he's proven himself. He's the fabricator, the driver, et cetera. This task force expands. They get new people on it. They've got him. They're running around doing Fast and the Furious stuff, but with cars, I mean, there's potential here. Let's hopefully they do something with it.
2: It'll be season two of the Viper. So I felt
1: it had the same grit as the transporter. Like to me, it felt more like that than it did the Fast and the Furious. And I'm okay with that because in the same way that the transporter was car adjacent, so was this movie. So the car, you know, that seven series that Statham drove in the first one, it wasn't the the star, but it got your attention. And so did that Renault
3: 21. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So I'll definitely agree with you with it having more transporter vibe than Fast and Furious vibe. Now on the storyline though, one thing that I found disappointing is the go fast. You never really see any chases going after them. You hear them talk about them, but you never see them. You know, It's like Mm -hmm. they're this huge issue but you would think there would have been more chase scenes involving that, you know, even if they are being outran, it would have been cool to have shown where they're being outran some. So but I don't... there was the one scene where he's chasing the five series
1: BMW and that they were part of the go fast. That was the only time there was kind of a, a real chase scene with them. But the scene that they did with the with the Renault 21 with the hooks on the front of it, those were dirty cops. And so yeah. you started to, as you went through the movie, you started to realize that the, the cops are part of the go fast syndicate as well. So I think we got two yeah, good know, go fast chase scenes out of that at the end of the day.
3: Well, it could have been budget stuff too, because like when I, when I watched it, there's a lot going on in the storyline. Yeah. And, and it's, it's hard to follow a little bit at first. And then the couple of pieces, when a couple of cops turn out to be dirty, then a lot of the pieces fall into place and a lot of stuff makes sense. Like I said, my my initial purpose for watching it was just for the first 30 seconds. And then somehow I watched it for the rest of it. And it was all over the really lousy welds in the first 30 seconds of the movie. But as I watched it, I really was liking the idea of the stuff he was welding and building. And it gave me ideas, ooh, I wouldn't mind building something like that.
1: <laughs> I mean, that, let's jump back to that mm-hmm. Cleo for a second. I mean, it was the ugliest generation of the Clio, hands down. I mean, it looks like just... a I don't know. It's awful, but he sticks a V10 Lamborghini engine midship, Right. And you're like, this is ridiculous. Like I was like, man, you're going to lose me about five minutes into this movie. If it's going to be like this. And when he blows through the wall, the walls plural and Jess starts cracking up. I'm like, oh man. Okay. Where are we going to go from here? I'm giving you one last shot. And the car stalls. He gets locked up. I was like, oh, thank God we didn't go on some 20 minute ridiculous, you know, blowing flames and, and lights under the car chasing. So I was like, this is a little bit more realistic. It's like completely absurd. But then that was like some levity right up front to get me engaged. It, you know, it finally tipped, the, tipped me over. And then I was like, all right, where are, we, where are we going from here? And it got super interesting. So I'm glad to see that even the later stuff, when he modified the R21, it wasn't totally out of the realm of possibility. You could tell there was definitely weight on the front end of that car. It was picking the picking the rear end up and stuff like that. And none of the driving was anything absolutely ridiculous. Like, you know, somebody's jumping Jersey walls and, you know, flying over cars and buses are going into orbit and stuff like that. It was It was pretty low key, but that's what I think kept it interesting and kept it exciting.
3: I'll say it was closer to realistic. Although I think the amount of steel on the front of that car, the front suspension would not have held it in reality. That's okay. all I'm going to say. Those old mattress springs, they used the suspension back then. That was not not yeah. not high performance stuff. It, it would have it looked like uh, you know the guys that do the uh, stunt stuff on street bikes have the metal plates on the bottom of their shoes and kick off all the sparks flying up when they're dragging their feet. That's what the front end of that car would have looked like going down the road with the amount of weight from all that steel in it, in my opinion. So- you know, since we've brought it up, let, let's talk about this car. Like nobody, you just, like you said, you look at it, you're like,
1: ah, eh, it's a box, you know, with, it looks like a box from the eighties, like all the rest of them, you know, it, it happens to have wraparound headlights. So it might be from the late eighties and you look at it, it's nothing special. And when Tanya sent me the picture, I said, Oh, that's a Citroen. And she's like, no, look closer. And I had to like kind of zoom in. And then I saw the, the Renault diamond on the, on the hood at first glance, you know, the Citroën BX is a similar looking car. And that's what I thought it was. And most people that aren't into French cars aren't going to know that either. But what they are going to know is an E30 M3. They're going to know the Ford Sierra Cosworth. They're going to know the Mercedes 190E, the Alpha 155, and cars like that. They're all of the same generation. And the Renault R21 was France's answer to especially the Ford Sierra Cosworth. And so... For the French people, it's a sports saloon, right? It's a it's a sports car that unfortunately was overshadowed by the R5 and by the Clio and, and some of the other you know hot hatches of the same era. But you'd probably be surprised to know that that little two liter puts out 175 horsepower. So for that time period, for a car that was built in 1986 and only ran to 1994. That's pretty good power for back in those days, especially in a front wheel drive. You know, looks can be deceiving. I was kind of hoping it was a rear wheel drive because that would have made it a little bit more special, especially trying to compete with the E30 M3 and a lot of those other cars. Apparently, it was built all over the world in Argentina. It was built in the United States and Canada and Turkey and down in uh, Colombia as well. And I mentioned the United States and Canada. And would anybody like to venture a guess? What the Renault Twenty One was sold as in the United States?
3: I'm intrigued. Sentra?
4: No,
0: not
2: today. Yeah, yeah, it would be today. Would I was be- trying to find the photo of it again so I could Is look the at it. A it's a Panaz. It's a Panaz.
1: Oh no, I'm, I'm staring <laughs> at it.
2: Like it, it's familiar, but I'm not, I'm not seeing okay, it. Okay, so if
5: me now would have been probably a Chrysler, like a very good um, your cloud car.
1: Very good. Very close to the money there, Chrissy. Mid-year production, 1989, it was sold in the United States as the Eagle Medallion. So they changed the front clip and the badge. You know, Headlights were basically the same and all that. And sold it. Sold the Renault 21 here with a lesser motor, non-turbo, eight valve uh, in the United States for like one year. And that was it. So if you are really in love with that car and can find one in your local scrapyard, you too can, can build the car from the movie. But...
5: But that being said- You're telling me it's some weird twisted cousin to the Eagle talent.
1: Yes, just for you, absolutely.
5: You know, nothing to write
1: home about from our perspective, especially at sport saloons of the day, but you know, to the French people, it was their version of the Sierra Cosworth, right? And it was up there, it was the underdog. And there's tons of articles about it. I think Jalopnik did one and, and a bunch of others about this unsung hero of you know French automobiles, et cetera. But I think it was cool to see something different featured in a film. It wasn't the same Porsche Ferrari, Mitsubishi, BMW that you know you always see in every action movie. It was a French car for a change
3: and multiple multiple French cars in the movie. Uh, one thing you were saying how this car in particular wasn't some flashy, you know, Porsche, Ferrari, or anything like that. I think that helped the storyline because it made you pay more attention to the storyline. Because for me, the car didn't, it was no bells and whistles for me. So the car was like, okay, it's just a car that something specials about it. But it made me pay more attention to the storyline instead of paying attention to the car.
1: I think Jess brought up something really important as we watched the film, which was there were a ton of station wagons.
3: They were all over the place.
5: The, uh, the female detective... She was, the, the car chasing at the end, she was in a BMW wagon, right?
4: Like half the, the, the vehicles for the police staff were wagons. I was like, what?
1: So Detective Moss drove an E46 station wagon and not the wimpy one that we got for like a couple of years here in the US. It was actually a legit E46 station wagon. It's very cool, all black. And then Julia ends up driving it in one of the last sequences. And I, also a quote from Jessica, uh, we got what halfway through the movie and you were like, is she ever going to talk other than the word no? Nah? Because she only said no, like during the first half of the movie. And that was it. Like, I didn't know what was going on. And I think the love interests between our main character, Lino and Julia was kind of interesting. They They unpack that in a weird way.
4: I'll just say it is unclear for too long that nine months have passed. They're just sort of like, fast forward. There's no little like, nine months later and like a full like 15 minutes it's like so in these past nine months i was like thank you (laughs) like thank you exposition otherwise i have no idea what's happening because they literally let him see the picture of his like new team and then it's nine months later and they're having like a lover's quarrel and they're not talking to each other. We have nothing to fill that
1: in. Now, I I will say Jess also asked me at one point, we're talking about the claw. She was like, "Is, is that legit? And I said, well, technically the other car was a Ford Mondeo, it's front wheel drive. Yes, if the claws are long enough and you grab the rear axle, you basically could do that. I thought it was hilarious when they pushed it into the police barricade. That was really cool. I mean, again, it was more authentic than a lot of other chase scenes and and, and things like that, where there wasn't the big, massive, big budget explosions. I thought the fact that it was more low key gave it just more grit and more realism and more credibility as a movie. I enjoyed that and I thought it it was really fun. So I like the cast. I thought they worked well together. I mean, they're no name to me, but in the same way I enjoyed Money Heist, I kind of very quickly, became comfortable with them, I enjoyed them, I wanna see more of the cast. Even Moss, who was kind of a, like, she was really hard-nosed. I wanna see more of all these characters working together. I was really disappointed to see Shiraz uh, die. I mean, that's a spoiler there, but it kind of wraps us into the end of this talk track about whether or not it's a car movie. And for me, I really thought it was a car movie because that end scene, when Lino builds basically that funeral pyre for Shiraz with the car covered with the flowers you know post the burn and all that ridiculousness that happened it was really touching and the way they finished it where they zoomed in on the picture of Shiraz in the car kind of doing like the what's up peace sign you know it was it was kind of touching for me I mean it didn't bring a tear to my eye but it was like as a car guy I was like I got you I was like I get this like there he had that love affair with car and there was a slight tie-in because it was a staple in the French police force and Lino made a comment about how his dad had one so that was the first insight to his backstory into how his dad was a police officer but they never touched it again so for me it kind of brought it all together and I don't know I I thought it was just really sweet and touching and and it turned it into a car movie
3: it definitely showed his appreciation for the car especially when the main character was trying to see if he could, he could drive it. And the guy's like, no, you're not driving. I truly understand that because my sister to this day is mad the fact I won't let her drive a couple of my vehicles. I'm like, sorry, you're not driving. So, but that's just how I am. If certain vehicles people don't drive Other ones I don't mind. I can appreciate that.
0: I was just going to say that I really enjoyed the movie. I thought just from a, as a whole, I, I just thought it was a good movie. It had a good story. The only thing that I didn't like about it or that was a little too Hollywood was beating up like, 20 police officers in the police station to try and get out. I mean, that was a little, I don't even know if Jason Statham could have done that. But I, other than that, I thought it was a very good movie. I, I would watch it again. It was very entertaining. I'm looking forward to seeing more. I think you all mentioned earlier that this is, there are plans to, to bring it back, to bring the group back or do another a, a sequel or something. Uh, I, would, I would definitely watch that. And I like the fact, as you all were saying earlier, that They've got all these, all these non-flashy cars. Like these are enthusiast cars. Like people, it's like us in the Mark IVs. Like people get enthusiastic about the, the Renault Clio's and the Megans. And he loved his little two-liter turbo. You know, you can't look, you can't touch the hood, anything under the hood of my two-liter turbo. You better leave it alone. That's how I feel about my GTI. That's how you feel about your TT. I know we all feel that way about our little crap boxes. And you know, other people on the outside don't get it, but it's not for them to get, it. it's for us to get. It. So I I connected with them because of their love for their cars and the love that I, and I assume that we all have, you know, for our own vehicles. I thought it was a good
3: movie though, I, I enjoyed it. So all in all, my initial purpose to watch was for the first 30 seconds to critique The Lousy Walding. I was impressed by it. It was a decent movie. I, I was intrigued the whole way through. It kept me interested and it's definitely something I'd potentially watch again.
5: Like I mentioned, the cover art is what initially drew me in. And then watching the preview further drew me in. And I thought it, I wasn't, didn't know what I was going to expect. And I listened to it in the native tongue. Um, <laughs> the movie was was made in. And I, and I thought it was going to be something that was just kind of, you know, even though I got to read the subtitles, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll just cab it in in the background and jump in and out of it. And I found myself completely like drawn into it and just watching it the whole way through. And it being way more entertaining than i thought it was going to be and i actually Brad i like the the, the action scene the police fight in the police station of him trying to get out because it because he's actually he's actually a stuntman so he's done stunts in some other um, i'd have to look it back up but there's actually some movies that we would all recognize that he's done stuntman work in so like he's really fighting in in those scenes like they're not cutting and doing cgi and all this other stuff so like it felt it felt real it felt more interesting
0: i I understand your point that it it was a good scene like movie wise i just as real to me as the rest of the movie felt i just i I find it hard to believe that even if he is a stuntman unless he's special forces or (laughs) or something he's not going to get away from 20 armed police officers inside the police precinct like that. Granted, it wasn't easy. He had to sneak out the back door after almost getting caught. But still, it, it felt very Chuck Norris to me.
1: Dude, they're, they're
0: French police
1: officers, all right? I, I'm just going to lay it out there.
0: I will, I will give you that. I'm surprised they didn't run the other way. They're going
3: to yell, let's stop.
0: Let's stop. <laughs> no, and, and I have a great
1: appreciation for all of my you know European neighbors, You know, being Italian, whatever. It's fine. But you know, all jokes aside, Jess, take us home.
4: Mm-hmm i mean i just i agree with tanya you know i thought having watched the previous two movies i really did think it was going to be a car movie so imagine my delight when they start the fight scene i was like oh snap okay totally different kind of movie here for it absolutely here for it so and much like everyone else has said i would happily watch that movie again i really like that actor it turns out he's actually super famous he's even been nominated for the French version of an Oscar. So like he's pretty legit, but I was a big fan. And the car scenes that were in that were what I was hoping the prior two movies completely failed to deliver. So
3: I will add, I know you guys said you watched it with English subtitles. I didn't realize that it was originally in French and had subtitles because I must've got the version of it where they audio over on it. So it was actually English, but I could tell, like I thought the audio track was off a little bit. So that makes sense if it was originally in French as to why some of their mouth moving didn't line up with the words being said. I thought it was just like, maybe my stream service wasn't that good at that time, <laughs> but you know, it is available to listen to in English if people don't want to read. Yeah, that, that's how I watched it, it was dubbed.
4: The English, it defaults to the English yeah. for the audio.
3: So I'll say
1: of all the four movies we talked about tonight, the one that we can solidly recommend a consensus is the one we least expected to be good, which is a French film, about an ex-con driving a Renault. And on that bombshell, I think it's time to end. Thanks everybody for being on. We'll do another one of these soon, promising to bring you an episode where we don't just talk about cars, talk about all sorts of things. So stay tuned for the next one. Thanks.
0: If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at two zero two six three zero one seven seven zero, or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Hey, listeners. Crew Chief Eric here. Do you like what you've seen, heard, and read from GTM? Great. So do we. And we have a lot of fun doing it. But please remember, we're fueled by volunteers and remain a no annual fee organization. But we still need help to keep the momentum going so that we can continue to record, write, edit and broadcast all of your favorite content. So be sure to visit www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports or visit our website and click in the top right corner on the support and donate to learn how you can help.